continue our service by reading scripture, which comes from Matthew 10, verses 16 to 42. And actually, if you could stand again with me, thank you very much. Matthew 10, starting in verse 16, says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant to be his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth. He will certainly not lose his reward. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, choir. And let's follow their lead, and let's ask God to speak to us as we open his word now. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. Gracious Father, we do thank you that you are not a God who has remained silent. How incredibly that changes everything. Lord, thank you that you've not left us guessing to ourselves about who you are or what you expect or how we're supposed to approach you, running around 
nervously always anxious about you know what what is it that we messed up or did wrong and so on and so forth but you have made yourself known to us you've shown us your power your beauty your holiness in in creation itself your majesty and you've revealed us to yourself to us personally by your spirit and through your son you've given us a living witness to that in your scriptures. So Lord, as we give our attention to your written word this morning, may your spirit be at work in each of our hearts to show yourself to us, uh, to show us who we really are, to give us grace to change our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you can find your Bibles, um, if you're if you don't have one with you, there's a, a few in the rack in front of you. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10 this morning, the passage that Sarah read a little bit ago, verses 16 to 42. If you're using the, the Bible in the rack in front of you, that's on page 965 of most of them. There are a handful that have different page numbers. We'll sort out those uh, at some point. Um, but go ahead and find your way there. There are uh, there are certain things, if I'm honest uh, with you, that I wish weren't in the Bible. Uh, things that I wish Jesus had never actually said. And uh, this passage is one of them. Um, I do not like some of what I read in this passage this morning. Specifically the idea that people might uh, reject me or ridicule me or even try to hurt me because of the gospel of Jesus, because of the good news of who he is and what he's done. And even less uh, than that do I like the idea that, that such aggressive responses might come from those closest to us, whether friends or family. Um, for much of uh, my wife Carissa's childhood, she and her siblings were essentially prohibited from discussing Jesus with their grandparents. Uh, when they were younger, they would try and write letters and, and tell them about Christ and, and plead with them to put their faith in Christ. And then one day, their parents were told that those letters need to stop. We don't want to hear about that anymore. Uh, faith in Jesus, salvation through faith in Jesus was not a welcome topic in their home anymore. The message of the gospel exposes our true loyalties and allegiances, whether for Jesus or against him. And as such, it sometimes has the effect, as Matthew 10.35 puts it, of turning man against his son or his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law though that last relationship doesn't usually need extra help, the mother and daughter-in-law thing. But, And many of you can tell your own stories of some of the difficult and very hard conversations you've had with people close to you, whether it's family members or friends, uh, some of the hurtful things that have been done or said uh, in their frustration or even their anger toward you or toward God. And there are probably plenty of things you wish you wouldn't have said, in some of those conversations, some of the things you wish you could have taken back too. 
But those experiences can be painful, enough so that we're tempted not even to bring it up anymore with anybody, even to deny our loyalty to Jesus if it's going to result in being rejected by someone else. The message of Matthew 10 this morning is that Jesus and his gospel are worth making known even in the face of severe opposition. Jesus and his gospel are worth making known even in the face of severe opposition, even if it means potentially losing a friend or family member, even our very lives. The risk is worth it that others might receive Jesus and the reward of knowing him. The passage that we're looking at is in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been going through this Gospel for uh, a while and just kind of studying our way through it. And our specific uh, text, verses 16 through 42, is the second part of Jesus' Sermon on Mission in Matthew 10. Uh, Last week we looked at the first part of it, where Jesus uh, commissioned his apostles, the twelve, and he sent them on a very specific mission to announce the kingdom of God to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, Jesus' kingdom is going to bring God's blessing to all nations of the earth. But he's going to do that precisely by fulfilling his promises that he made to Israel in the Old Testament. And so the message, the announcement of the kingdom, is sent first to them. He sends out his apostles Now, verses 1 through 15 focused primarily on what the apostles were to say and to do. They were to announce that the kingdom was at hand. They were to raise the the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons, all sorts of signs that God's kingdom is now here because the king has now come. They were to trust God to provide what they needed, not to turn this mission into an opportunity for financial gain. They were just to trust God to provide through those who hosted them. They were to tell others who Jesus is, what he's doing, not because they themselves were better or somehow had it together, but because they too were broken people on whom Jesus had had compassion And they were to announce that Jesus has come to make all things new. We live in a world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. With broken hearts, broken relationships, and a broken relationship with God. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion. They were announcing that now that Jesus has come, he's making things new. He's going to do it through his kingdom. And ultimately, though they didn't know this at the time, he's going to do it through his cross. So he sent them to make this message known among Israel, and and the first verses tell them what to do and to say, but as we come to verse 16 and following, the tone becomes much graver. Here Jesus is focusing on what's going to happen to them as they go and make his name known, and how they should respond. And it's not a very pleasant picture. Uh, Thomas Kincaid never based any of his paintings on Matthew chapter 10. Okay, There's no flowers rainbows, no frolicking unicorns here or anything. The lost sheep of Israel that they're being sent to are, just like the rest of fallen humanity, they are dreadfully capable of acting like wolves. There's danger in this mission. And so Jesus lays down the grim reality of persecution. 
including that of the hardest sort, to be rejected by those closest to us. I want to look first at how Jesus describes this opposition that they should anticipate on their mission to make him known. He starts with a a general warning in verse 16, picking up again the sheep metaphor that he's been using since the end of chapter 9. He says in verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Now, that's kind of a strange metaphor. It's a bit loaded with, you know, animals kind of popping out everywhere there, sheep and wolves and snakes and doves and so on. But the sense is pretty straightforward. Like a sheep among wolves, the disciples are going into dangerous territory. Though There are people who will look to hurt them and take advantage of them. And so, therefore, they need to be both as wise or shrewd as a snake and yet also as innocent as a dove. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about what Jesus is talking about by that innocence and shrewdness there. But uh, at least part of being shrewd or wise is recognizing the likelihood of both public and private opposition to them and their message. And we see the public opposition described in verses 17 to 18. He says, Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Notice the public setting of all of those different situations. They've got local councils or courts. You've got synagogues. You've got you know, royal palaces standing before kings and rulers. Jesus tells them, when you go around announcing me as king of heaven and earth, you will be charged publicly with blasphemy against God and with treason against Caesar. You are going to be dragged before these different uh, public arenas. They're going to print your name in the papers. They're going to gossip about you on Facebook and so on. The message goes public and with it comes the ridicule. Now, in the Western world, we rarely see the kind of violent opposition that's described in these verses. And we need to be very thankful about that. And yet as laws become increasingly intolerant or or unfriendly toward a biblical portrait of Christianity, we should not be naive that different forms of opposition may arise at different times. Nor should we be naive about the violent persecution that is happening in other parts of the world right now. In the last two months, over 60 churches where Christian institutions have been destroyed in Egypt. Just two months. Sixty churches destroyed in Egypt. Right now, as uh, the U.S. and Russia debate what to do about Syria, both the government that's standing there and all of its thuggishness and the, the, the Muslim rebel opposition, both of them pose a deadly threat to the Christians in Syria. Just two weeks ago, was it two? Yeah, two weeks ago, the Muslim rebels with whom we were potentially going to align attacked one of the oldest continually inhabited Christian villages in the world, a place where they still speak Aramaic, the, the language Jesus spoke, and still pray the Lord's Prayer in the same language he prayed it. They attacked this town, leaving 30 Christians missing and at least six dead. This is two weeks ago. So as the kingdom goes public, 
so do his followers, and with it comes public opposition. The more familiar to us is the private opposition uh, that we sometimes face. And we see this in verses 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. Again, that's a pretty violent scale of family dysfunction there. Uh, and, and we don't often see that in our corners, though it's not uncommon in other parts of the world. But even if it rarely turns violent here, the pain of family division or betrayal is still very real. Uh, sometimes it's just the, the frequent awkwardness at family meals. You know, They don't get why you don't laugh at the jokes that you used to laugh at or they're kind of put off when you ask them to stop saying those words around your kids and so on. It doesn't make any sense. It's just awkward. Uh, but sometimes that pain goes a lot deeper. The sister that you grew up playing dress-up with and having tea parties, the, the brother who stood up for your wedding and whose wedding you got to stand up for, and now that you're following Jesus, they don't want anything to do with you. That's, that's pain. They might not have killed you, but, but you are dead to them. Parents who sacrificed everything so that you could go to the right school, right college, get into the right med school, and now you tell them that, that God's calling you to go overseas as a missionary instead, and they don't get it. And they're understandably confused. I mean, their dreams and their expectations have been crushed. But they react by trying to crush you because of it. These are real situations. So, so why is this kind of opposition to be expected? Why do we have such a downer passage uh, in Matthew here? We already have seen that answer in brief in verse 22. Jesus says, because of me, for my name's sake. That's the ultimate reason. But, but he elaborates and he gives us two main reasons. First, we can expect opposition because the followers are going to be treated in the same way as the master. And you see that in verses 24 and 25. A student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the servant to be like his teacher, or the student like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, which is kind of roughly a translation of Lord of the Flies, which is basically an insulting term for Satan. So if Jesus is being called, you know, the, the dung lord, Satan, what do you expect them to call you? You know, a servant is not above his master. So that's one of the reasons that opposition is going to happen, because the world's already opposed to Jesus. They're going to be opposed to his followers, too. But second, we can expect opposition because the message of the gospel exposes our true allegiances. It shows us whom we're truly loyal to. Look with me at verses 34 to 36. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Those are perhaps some of the most shocking words you're going to read in the Gospels. 
I did not come to bring peace. I mean, what happened to peace on earth and goodwill toward men? I thought that's kind of what he came for. Why does Jesus seem so divisive here? Well, the point is not so much that he's trying to create fiction, or excuse me, create friction. He's not a, you know, a family warmonger or, or something like that. The point is that the announcement of the kingdom is a claim of universal and absolute authority by Jesus. And as such, it reveals just how dark the human heart has become. And that's what the Micah 7 passage he's quoting here is talking about, just how ugly our sin can get when our hearts are shown for what they really are, how families can turn and just eat one another. And the reason that that darkness is, is coming out is because our true allegiances are exposed and what we will do to defend those allegiances. You cross my God, I cross you. And it gets ugly. I mean, think about what, what rival sports allegiances can do to a family dynamic. Uh, as most of you know, I, I grew up in Nebraska, and uh, the state religion there is Husker football, basically. I'm pretty sure it's in the Constitution or something like that. But when my sister-in-law, Jessica married a man from a fan of Ohio State University who was from Ohio even. Uh, and, and when her new husband put a, an Ohio State lawn ornament in the front yard of my in-laws, let's just say family dinners haven't been the same you know, ever since. Now, that's a joke. Richie's an incredible guy, but you get the picture. So, so if an allegiance to a sports team could potentially divide a family. What about our allegiance to ultimate things, whether for Jesus or against him? When Jesus claims that he alone deserves our ultimate allegiance in life, as he says in verses 37 to 39, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me, dying to the world, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life in this world will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When he claims that he is king, that he's worthy of leaving everything else behind, that our greatest allegiance should be to him, that claim ignites a fire in those whose allegiances lie elsewhere. How dare you follow Jesus and not me? I raised you. How dare you? you know, and so on. It ignites a fire, and that fire can often burn. And yet Jesus reminds his disciples, and he reminds us here, that there is a purpose in this kind of public or private opposition. It doesn't happen because Jesus accidentally slipped off of his throne for a minute and then everything kind of went haywire. God is using even painful things like this kind of opposition. Uh, look again at verse 18 with me. He says, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what 
to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Persecution is not just one of the responses to the mission to announce the gospel. It's also one of the means that God uses to bring us before multiple audiences. So think of the last several chapters of the book of Acts where Paul is is going around testifying to multiple people. Basically, most of his opportunities to preach Jesus in front of different audiences come because he's being carted around as a prisoner from prefect to, you know, uh, or tribune to governor and ultimately to Caesar. It's in the very context of persecution that he has some of the best audiences for making Jesus known. Similarly, Jesus tells his apostles here in, in verse 23, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Keep moving. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, there's a lot of different ideas about what that last phrase means there, before the Son of Man comes. Uh, but here I think it refers to when Jesus ascends to his Father and comes to his Father to receive uh, dominion, as Daniel 7.13 puts it, after his death and resurrection. Jesus does not leave his people alone in their witness. He's sending them out, but he's not leaving them alone. Not on this first mission here in Matthew 10, nor in the great commission that he sends the whole church on at the end of the book. Here, it is the spirit of your father that will speak through you. You don't have to fear what you're going to say. Trust God to give you the words in that difficult moment. He's going to open your mouth. The spirit of your father will speak through you. In Matthew 28:20, when he sends the whole church on the great commission, it's by that same spirit that Jesus himself promises to be with us. He says, lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so though he tells them in verse 22 that they're going to be hated by all kinds of people, for his name's sake, he will be with them. Their opposition will not destroy them. Rather, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is with them. He will keep them. They will persevere. So how should his followers then react this is a very, again, this is, this is a heavy word that he's giving to his apostles. How should they react to the likelihood of this kind of opposition? Well, look at verses 26 through 33 with me. And, and just kind of glance at those verses and notice what Jesus says three times in those verses. Do not be afraid. Verse 26. Do not be afraid. Verse 28, do not be afraid. Verse 31, how well does Jesus know the human heart? (laughs) Who doesn't respond in fear when they're told, you're going to go do this and people aren't going to like you because of it? We fear. But he tells us three reasons here why we need not be afraid. First, The kingdom of God will be revealed despite opposition. Verse 26. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed 
or hidden that will not be made known. You are playing for the winning team. And there's nothing ultimately that your opponents can do to keep God's message from going forth. And so Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What I, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Make the kingdom known. Make the kingdom known. Second, whatever they can do to you, your opponents, it's not ultimate or eternal. So verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, the point here, and and I don't mean this in a trite way, I mean this in a very freeing and hopeful way, is that the worst that can happen to you in in the face of opposition is that you can die. And Jesus has already conquered death. Paul says in Philippians, to live is Christ. To die is gain because it means more of Christ for his people. What ultimately can they do to you that matters when you see it from that perspective? You don't need to be afraid. There's nothing they can do to you eternal or ultimate. If you want to be afraid of that, then God's the one you need to fear. But then he tells us, third, you don't need to be afraid of him if you are a follower of Jesus because he is good, he is working all things according to your purposes, and if Jesus is your king, you are very dear to God. Verse 29 through 31 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's how intimately he knows us. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. So if Jesus is your Savior and King, you are God's child. And if God doesn't allow a single worthless sparrow to fall to the ground without his own care and plan, then he's not going to let anything meaningless happen to you. He's in control He loves you. He's good. He's with you. So instead of fear, he calls us to faithful witness. To acknowledge him before men, as he says in verses 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But note the warning, the seriousness of this. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. We are called not to fear, but to persevere and to be faithful witnesses and to make Christ known. So what what does that kind of bold witness look like? Uh, Especially when you think about some of the difficult situations that many of us live and move and have our being in. Uh, What does it look like to honor an unbelieving father and mother? You know, or to navigate rules and restrictions about discussing religion uh, or religious beliefs in your schools and workplaces? How do you honor the system and yet still be bold in your faith for Christ? How do you share Christ faithfully without chickening out or fearing potential rejection, but yet without creating unnecessary carnage in, in, in what are sometimes unwelcoming environments? This is where we come back to Jesus' opening words. 
in verse 16. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, serpents or snakes are sometimes personified in Scripture as crafty or wise. You think of the serpent in the garden. And and by shrewdness here, we're talking about the kind of wisdom that, that you're able to see the situation from multiple angles, to be able to see it and kind of know how to navigate it. That's a shrewdness. But, but shrewdness by itself can quickly turn into manipulation. So not just seeing the angles, but playing them against one another to get what you want. That's not what Jesus wants here. So he tells us not only to be shrewd as a snake, but also innocent as a dove. And doves in the Old Testament are, are at times pictured as just that, innocent or harmless or meek, unthreatening. So it means living life in such a way that you give others no good reason to feel alarmed around you and, or suspicious or threatened by you or your agenda. It's living, <coughs> excuse me, it's living with integrity, living above reproach. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, <coughs> excuse me, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So that innocence as doves, it's living above reproach, not making unnecessary people unnecessarily worried about you or your agenda. But that kind of innocence left by itself can also quickly turn into naivete. And you can be caught off guard, unprepared, easily taken advantage of. And so, so Jesus doesn't want us to be naive about the situation. He wants us to be both innocent and shrewd. He wants us to see the situation, to see the roadblocks, to see the, uh, the landmines and the open doors, and to know how to navigate those with integrity. Trusting God to provide that, uh, to, to guide us. <clears throat> So, another way to think of it, innocent shrewdness, it's not laying in wait to hijack every conversation, you know, uh, like a rude salesman who's only interested in, in giving you the pitch and then moving on. It's praying for God to open doors. It's being watchful for those open doors. And it's being sensitive to the Spirit's leading when you need to nudge that door open just a little bit more. Uh, I remember a spring break trip my freshman year. I was uh, riding in the car with a good friend of mine who was at that time really wrestling with what he believed about the faith. <clears throat> and uh, as we're driving down the road, we're listening to Johnny Cash. And uh, every single song on that particular album was about Jesus and the gospel. And it got to the point where I just had to stop the CD and say, what do you think about that? I mean, we need to talk about this. And... and you know, sometimes you just have to go for it and, and, and start the conversation. There's a very real urgency to the message. And yet, innocent shrewdness is boldness without unnecessary offensiveness. Okay? Unnecessary offensiveness. It's not attacking a conversation or a person uh, like a pit bull. Uh, it's not manipulative or coercive. You can win the argument and still lose the person. 
you can win the argument and still lose the person. Sadly, I say that from experience. It's not about being right or, or making sure they know you're right. It's not about winning the argument. It's even less about showing them how much you know about a particular subject. It's about loving people the way Christ loves them. It's about listening and understanding. Understanding the questions that they themselves are asking and then being able to help them connect the dots between the gospel of Jesus. How does it speak to those questions? But notice I say unnecessary offensiveness. (coughs) Some offense is necessary in that the message itself will be found offensive by some. And we're not told to water down or change the message for that reason. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both the power, both uh, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So some will take offense to the message, which means that as we seek to make Christ known in sometimes unwelcoming circumstances, we cannot be naive about the fact that there is a very real risk in losing some relationships. And that can be very pain, painful, very lonely uh, lonely place to be. And and, and the closer that a person is to you, the more it hurts when they move away from you. In those difficult moments, I want you to remember three things. First, Jesus is familiar with your suffering. Jesus is familiar with your suffering. He knows what it's like to be rejected by family. John 7, 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. How's that for you? He knows what it's like to be rejected by his closest companions. The very apostles to whom he is giving these instructions right now are going to abandon him in fear at the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus knows your rejection. He knows the loneliness and the sorrow that can come with it because he experienced even worse in his own life. Yet second, Jesus is not just familiar with your suffering. He's also with you in your suffering. He not only experienced the same kind of rejection, he experienced your very rejection, the the, the rejection you face in life when he took it on himself on the cross. Sometimes we don't think about that, how everything that this fallen world, the worst that it could do to one another or to him, it poured out, was poured out on Jesus on the cross. All the rejection, all the hurt, all the pain you experienced, he took it on himself. And more than that, all of his father's holy anger against that sin, against that pain, and against your own sin was poured out on him as well. That was what Christ bore in our place. Everything wrong with this world, the brokenness of relationships with each other, the brokenness of our relationship with God, Christ took all of it on himself on the cross. 
He knows the pain of rejection, the pain of your rejection of him, and the pain of the rejection that you have borne from others. And in his love, he dealt decisively with it by taking it, by exhausting it, by rising from the grave over it victoriously in order to forgive us and cleanse us and make us whole, bring us into his family that we might know and love and follow him. Jesus is familiar with your sufferings. Jesus is with you in your suffering. He's right there with you. And third, the risk of suffering is worth it. The risk of suffering is worth it. Is there a risk in sharing Christ with others? Yeah, there is. But it's worth it. It's worth it because Jesus is worth it. There is nothing more life-giving, more satisfying than the knowing and being known by your Savior, Jesus Christ, your Maker, your King. He is the treasure worth selling everything else for in order to buy it. If you had to give everything else up you have in life, it would be worth it for Jesus. This world can take everything away from us, but it cannot take us away from Jesus. He's worth it. Second, the risk is worth it because though it may may mean great loss for us, it also means great reward. Elsewhere, later in Matthew, Jesus says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and eternal life. We become part of God's family and we enjoy his inheritance. So there is great reward. But it's worth it for another reason. And this is the reason that Jesus focuses on at the end of this sermon in chapter 10. Making Christ known is worth the risk of losing relationships that others might receive Jesus and the reward of knowing him, that they too might be saved and have eternal life. Look at verses 40 to 42 with me. Not everyone responds with opposition or rejection on their mission. Verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Jesus tells his apostles that whoever receives them while they're on their mission to make his name known actually receives Jesus. And whoever receives Jesus receives the Father. It's how you come to know the Lord. It's through believing in the message of Jesus that we come to know God. And as Paul says in Romans 10, How can they believe on one whom they've not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? The risk of losing relationship on earth is worth it that others, that those who do receive, might know 
the reward of having Jesus Christ. Author and uh, musician Michael Card tells the true story of a, a Maasai warrior in Africa named Joseph who had somehow connected and shared this story with Billy Graham a few years ago. He writes, One day, Joseph, uh, this man, was walking along one of the hot, dirty African roads, and he met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the same good news with members of his local tribe. Joseph went from door to door telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation that it offered, expecting to see their faces light up just as his. To his amazement, the villagers did not only not care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. Afterwards, he was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after days of uh, passing in and out of consciousness, he gained enough strength to get up. And he wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from the people he'd known all of his life. Uh, He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. And so after rehearsing the message that he'd first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. He limped into the circle of the huts and he began to proclaim Jesus. And again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. Again, days later, Joseph woke up in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back again. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he spoke again to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he woke up in his own bed. The ones who had severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. May God be pleased to use us to make his name known, whatever the cost. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about your word this morning, I confess that the probably the, the primary emotion that wells up in my heart is fear. It's fear of people not liking me. It's fear of losing friends who are dear to me. And Lord, I pray 
<clears throat> for myself, my own heart. I pray for all of us that that you would lift our eyes to see our lives and our circumstances from your perspective. That we need not be afraid because you really are king. You really are worthy. And you really are at work to change lives. God, may we trust you. And Lord, I pray uh, for any among us this morning who are just, <clears throat> excuse me, wrestling with this message. Wrestling with the broader message of Christ. Who is he? Is this, is this true? Is this worth it? May your spirit give comfort. May your spirit give perspective. May you open eyes and hearts to see Jesus for who he is. In his beauty, in his holiness, in his worthiness, and also in his love. May we see the love poured out for us on the cross. May we see that we have not been left to decay and fall apart, but that Christ is making all things new. That he began that work when he came and established his kingdom. He will be faithful to return and finish it in the end. God, may that be our hope. May that be our hope. Lord, I pray for those who uh, serve on our behalf around the globe, carrying this very message to others. We think this morning especially of Ian and Becca right out their work in Niger. Uh, Lord, would you give them a good transition back to the field? Uh, help their children reconnect with old friends. Help them get back into the flow of school at the Sahel Academy. Lord, would you uh, be with them and guide them and would your gospel continue to go forth? Lord, I pray for the same boldness and the same fruit in and through our lives here, God. May you be pleased to use our different ministries. May you be pleased to use our lives and relationships for your kingdom. You are the treasure worth losing everything else for. May we live that way. And Lord, we pray that in your power you would be with those among us who are hurting or in need in a special way at this time. God, I pray for those who are in between jobs. I pray for those who are facing financial difficulties. I pray, Lord, for those uh, whose health has been uh, very challenging of recent. Lord, we thank you for answered prayer. We thank you that Davis Bates is with us worshiping this morning. What a sweet gift that is to have him joining us after such a, a rough go recently. Uh, we pray you continue to keep him uh, Give him strength and healing, Lord. And Lord, we pray for those among us who are battling cancer. I pray for Mary Boy. Would you continue, Lord, to keep her uh, healthy? Would you uh, deliver her from this tumor, Lord? Would you give her strength? We pray, Lord, for Stephen Gerber. God, would you bring him home soon, Lord? Would you bring him home? Uh, we pray, God, for Rick Brown, for Bob French, for others, Lord. Lord, we are in need of you. We are weak and broken people. But you are a great and mighty God. So we need you. We ask that you be with us. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the family you've given us here. Thank you for your grace that can never be exhausted, poured out for us on the cross. Lord, may we walk in that grace daily. In Jesus' name, amen.